just a side note, Jessica, I really wanted to be on a game show like my entire life. Oh. Like I I tried out for Wheel of Fortune. They told me I didn't have the Wheel of Fortune personality, and it, I took it as like a personal attack what? for like fifteen to twenty years of my life. So oh, wow. this is really fun for me. I didn't know there was <laughs> such a thing as a Wheel of Fortune personality. Yeah, yeah. Know. I think it's just that I have resting bitch face, you know, and I wasn't going to get up there and be like, "Oh my god," you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, now, now I could probably fake it, but you know. Anyways. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to episode 13 of OTTB On Tap. I'm Neve. And I'm Emily. Hey, Neve, what's on tap today? Today, we're going to be talking about a fairly polarizing topic in the OTTB world. What's in a price tag? The value of buying an OTTB from a trusted reseller. We've got Jessica Redman of Benchmark Sport Horses with us again to help dissect the process and background information of how fair market value prices are determined and what goes into determining a price tag on an OTTB. Jessica, thanks for joining us again. Good to be here. Little scared, <laughs> little nervous. <laughs> Before we jump into this dense episode, we're going to be playing a little game. I've got 10 horses, OTTBs from around the country. I'm going to quiz you both on them. I'm going to give you a little bit of a descriptor about them, age, height, and if there's any kind of notes about them. And then you're going to guess how much you think the horse is being marketed right off the track. And to help you guess the horse, you can either ask me for pedigree information, the location, or the color of the horse. Whoever has the most amount of penalty dollars for being over or under on the price is going to be the... All right. Horse number one for Jessica. It is a 15-3, five-year-old mare. It's had 17 starts and a small chip in the ankle. What do you think its price right off the track is? There are listings at the track. Okay, so track listings. And uh, yeah, tell me what the markings are. She's gray, dapple gray. Um, 3,500. So she used 3,000, so you were pretty good there. good job. Okay, Emily, you're up next. (laughs) Very nervous. We've got a tall mare... And she's sort of bigger boned and she is five years old. So it's a tall mare, bigger boned, mm-hmm. no race. It says has speed. Okay. Let's Oh, <laughs> This one's tough. I would say let's go pedigree. She is by Minister's Wildcat, who's by Deputy Minister. Okay. And the bottom line is Unbridled Prayer by Song and a Prayer. I know you happen to like... Both well, I'm generating <laughs> an image in my brain. I don't have no idea if it's at all accurate, obviously. <laughs> Going off of that information, ooh, this is hard. I'm going to say 4,500. Oh, 4,000. So you guys are right now. This is getting what, wait, good. What okay, color I like is that this. one? I'm curious now. Basically plain oh, bay. Okay. Jessica, you're up next. This is... Trainer favorite, it's a gelding, playful and social and would be a fun addition to the barn. He's got slight ankle rounding and he is eight years old and 16 too. What is he a war horse? 41 starts. Okay. Yeah. What's the pedigree? I think that's what I'm going to ask. He is by Drosselmeyer, who's by uh, Distorted Humor and out of Explosive Disco, who's by Explosive Truth. I'm going to go with 4,500. 
Oh, 4,000. So you're averaging pretty solidly here. <laughs> All right, Emily. Yep. Uh, we've got a mayor with a nice demeanor and a can-do attitude. They say they think she'd suit eventing and they could see her tackling a cross-country course. Mm. She is five and she's 16 hands and she had 32 starts. Let's do the color and markings on this one. Okay. She is a chestnut mare with two high whites behind and a big blaze and a pink nose. Oh, I'm going to say, I'm going to go a little lower for some reason. This I'm going to say 35. She is being listed as at five grand. Wow. Okay. Yeah, she's uh, she's really nice to put together. <laughs> All right, <clears throat> Jessica, we've got ooh, <laughs> she's described as a triple threat. <laughs> she's a mare, a cribber, and it's controlled with a collar. They say she's a dream to ride, and she's motivated to work. She is five fifteen three, and she had twenty six starts. I'm gonna go with fifteen hundred. No questions. You're, no questions? Nope. She is 5,500. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> she is a chestnut mare who nope. cribs. <laughs> wow. All right. All right, Emily. Okay. This is, oh, this is a youngster. This is a two-year-old that's only been lightly started under saddle. And they say should mature to 16-2. So no starts, mayor, and they think she'll mature to 16-2. Hmm. How do you price a two-year-old? That's rough. I guess let's go on to pedigree. Okay. I think this might help you a little bit. She's by Higher Power, who is by Medaglio Dioro. And she's out of Marley's Magic, who is by Flashy Bull. So why aren't they racing her? <laughs> well, <clears throat> I would like to have that horse. Oh, no, the owner is downsizing oh, it. Says. Okay. I would like to have that horse in my barn, but Mm -hmm. let's see. Pricing for a two-year-old that's lightly started. I bet they're going to go higher than they probably should. So I'm going to say, let's say 4,000. That sounds like a nice round number. Okay. She's listed at 5,000. I have a feeling it might be kind of high. I have have more questions about that one, but, you know, we can. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that breeding is pretty, pretty darn nice. Jessica, we have got an eight-year-old, 16-1, well-mannered gentleman, retiring sound. And he had 24 starts. Mm, Let's go with the markings and the color. Okay. He is chestnut with a stripe and three high white socks. Eight year old. Hmm. I'll go with five. Oh, right on the money. I feel like eight year olds are your, your wheelhouse kind of. They're making me really nervous. Like I couldn't sell these horses for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, but and, okay. and like I said, these are from all over the country. Yeah. All right. Emily, yeah. you've got a, four-year-old big hunky dude they say he's got a nice mind and it is an old soul and he has some minor ankle rounding and is a very mild cribber he's 16 2 and he's had 17 starts let's go on color on this one he is a very very dark bay with two little coronet bands hmm 
4,500. Right on the Woo-hoo! money. You guys both. Wow. That was perfect. All right. This is this is awesome. <laughs> we have 25 starts, last raced in November 2023. Big, bold, stunning horse as a gelding. Upper level potential, but is strong and bold and will require a skilled rider. And he is 16-2. Yeah, tell me the breeding. He's by Surf Cat out of a Vicar Mare. Mm, okay, I'm going to go with six. All right, 6,500. Wow. I think this is the last one. This one's for Emily. We have got a very large 17.3. He's very athletic. Uh-huh. He's a Ridgling. Okay. Ooh. And he raced times. How about color and markings? Oh, and he's six. All right, Sorry. so he's six. He's 17.2 or three and Ridgling. Yeah. Yeah. And what color and markings? Uh, they said he can be strong to ride. He is a uh, dark bay with three high whites and a big blaze. So I think this is what should this horse be priced at versus what is he actually priced <laughs> at? I'm- I think I saw the ad for this horse. So I, I actually am glad you got this question because I'm pretty sure I know what he's priced at. I'm going to say he's priced at five. Yep. Really? Oh, wow. He should be yeah. priced at $1,500 because... <laughs> I don't even right. know what a Ridgeling surgery would cost nowadays, but twenty five hundred. There we go. Is that I got was twenty five hundred, and I did three of them last oh year, goodness. and that's if oh everything goes right, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, very painful. All right. Well, we'll come back to that later, and we'll see who won that little matchup. Thanks for playing. Yeah, you guys. It was fun. <laughs> that was fun. Let's get into the episode. So there's an old adage that something is worth what somebody is willing to pay for it at a given date and time. And I think that's really true about the thoroughbred industry as well. I did a lot of research for this episode on the topic of price, and I just want to go over some metrics based on that to help start the discussion off. Some of these numbers are based on statistical analysis, and some are based on Facebook polls of a more generalized variety. So your mileage may vary with some of those things. So take it all with a grain of salt. In 2023, a study conducted by the University of Arkansas Division of Agriculture of 170 OTTBs between 2012 and 2020, some interesting factors could be determined. Can we clarify how is OTTB classified in this study? Are these horses that are straight off the track or have they been already bought and are ready to be resold? These were horses right okay, off the track. Cool. So with that in mind, from the study, the median price for an OTTB was just under $2,500. The largest factors that influenced the price were age, gender, and color. And after age nine, the price of an OTTB dropped significantly. And on average, mares drew roughly $925 less than geldings. Color was a big factor with chestnuts and grays averaging $1,000 more than bays, brown, and black. I'm really surprised to hear that they included chestnuts in that. Because in my experience, plain chestnut is often the hardest to sell. But if they have a ton of white. even Yeah, even just like chestnut was some way is for me just harder to sell. Yeah. I, I didn't know it's, that it's at odd. all until I started doing it like as a business. And I was like, why? Will- chestnuts are <laughs> the hardest to sell out of anything. Like I will always say that a plain chestnut is the hardest to sell. And then the other metric that I used was the RRP reported data from the last 15 years that stated that the median price for an OTTB 
was 1580 in 2016 and exponentially rose to 24, $24, $24,440 $24, in 2021. And in a Facebook poll that we did in our group, OTTB Market, we had 1,680 participants. We asked what the price people would be willing to pay for a sound 16-hand OTTB with no vices. 61% of people answered between 1,500 and 3,000, with 19% answering between 500 and 1,500, and 14% answering 3,000 to 5,000. So... That's pretty interesting, especially with the game we just played, where I think very few of those were in that 1,500 mm-hmm. to 3,000 range, mm-hmm. even with other- Yeah, when I made that game, I wasn't looking for horses that were priced high. That seemed to be kind of the trend. Yeah, especially the one, what, with the ankle chip that was still over yeah. that. Really interesting. Or the chestnut, the chestnut mare that grip. Yeah. Yeah. That was... <laughs> You're never selling what, what that. Five thousand or something. She was yeah. she was six thousand dollars, I think, or something like that. Nobody's yeah. nobody's buying that once it's in your barn, right? Like, I mean, she was a very nice looking horse, I have to say. But it's just you know, like especially knowing on the other side, it would just be really <laughs> hard. You know, you have to really prove that it was just a spectacular horse. Yeah. When I'm mm-hmm. just so much harder to do that at the track that I'm like, hmm, I don't know. I just don't know that like they would get those prices. Yeah. And I think all of us personally don't mind a chestnut or a mare or a horse at cribs. Right. But it's just knowing what the expectations are on the flip side of trying to sell that. So Neve, with all that to digest, it sounds like 2,500 is kind of the starting point, but what actually drives the price that resellers place on their horses? Well, I think you have to start at the very beginning at the track and what the trainer paid for the horse as a yearling or a two-year-old. And those prices can really vary wildly. I mean, you see ads all the time where an OTTB is marketed and they say, oh, sold for $500,000 as a yearling. And I think that that's a strange number for most people to wrap their heads around because I feel like from the get-go, trainers and owners of racehorses are financially super invested, right? They're not really getting these horses for dirt cheap. I, I would love to know what the average auction price is, but when you're on Equibase, you can, if a horse has an auction record, you can actually see, was it ever at auction, how much it was sold for, and if it, the reserve wasn't met. So I think that's the first point for trainers at the track. They've already got <clears throat> X amount of dollars invested in the horse. And then there's the cost to train a horse at the track, which I did a little research on this, and it seems to vary between $2,500 to $4,000 a month. Wow. That's paying for someone to pony the horse, ride the horse, the day rate of the stall, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of costs in there. And then just the general overhead of having stalls in a shed row. And then you've got the time of year. If it's the end of the meet, sometimes you're going to find that you can get an off-the-track thoroughbred for a little bit cheaper because the trainers are w- tr- willing to empty out their stalls or they're not racing over the winter. So that's something to keep in mind as well. If the trainer is not desperate to empty out the stall, they're going to maybe hold on to higher prices. You've also got people that are kind of counting on the fact that their horses are going to get claimed. And those claiming prices, I feel like, generally start way above $2,500, right? So you've got 
trainers that are not really willing to let them go for much less than a claiming price because they could just run it in another race and maybe it'll get claimed. And then you've got stuff like injuries and vices. And I would like to think that most trainers are pretty honest about that stuff, but that does factor into how they're going to price that horse coming off the track to some degree. Would you, would you say Jessica, that trainers like factor that into how they price their horses? <laughs> so my honest answer is, is that I think a lot of vices are, are never disclosed. Right. That's right. Just my experience. But I think that if trainers are knowledgeable and they know that the horse has vices, they are going to price it less, you know, cribbing, stall walking, weaving, that kind of thing. So yeah, just if they understand that having a vice will make the horse harder to sell in a sport horse career. Yeah. And then I think the location does make a big difference too. And we talked about this in previous episodes, but I think as a general trend, the tracks that are in California tend to ask for a little bit more. I think that's just a supply and demand situation. And it's also probably that it's a lot more expensive to keep a horse at the track in California versus the East Coast and, and down South. So Jessica, do you think that what trainers have invested into their horses at the track does set a tone for what they're expecting to get out of the horses when they're um, finished running? No, I actually really don't think that at all. That hasn't been my experience. I think there's other factors that tend to be more important than what they actually have invested. I think it's just sort of an expectation that they're going to pay whatever it costs to buy these horses at the sales and that the training fee is whatever it is. And the prices sort of from what I gather are more set based on size, color, athletic ability, breeding, and sometimes just how knowledgeable the trainer might be on what the horse is worth to the sport horse community. So mm -hmm. those things all just depend. And, you know, there's so many factors that go into it. I just feel like pricing is, it's like such a wild card. I obviously look at Facebook pretty much every day, just looking at horses and the prices are just drastically different. And I can never really say that there's like a formula that drives the prices necessarily. Um, yeah. And have you seen any trend over the last 10 years in how trainers are pricing their horses or does that just really fluctuate? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think as a whole, horses are much more expensive. I mean, I think what people maybe don't understand is that for what we do as a reseller, it is much harder for us to find horses now because the reality is, is that we have to be smart about what we can pay if we have to figure out like what we're going to make on our end. And the prices are now so much higher that it makes it more difficult for somebody that is planning on bringing that horse home and getting it going and trying to make additional profit. So I think it would just depend on sort of how you're looking at that. Some people might be completely comfortable paying 5000 for something at the track. If it's a pretty color and it has chrome, I feel like those horses to me, I've seen them just selling just because they're attractive. And I don't know that that was always the case. And in general, I do think horses that I'm seeing, even from the people that I buy from, the, the prices have definitely went up. And as I think the trainers are just much more aware that the horses have value and the RRP has generated a lot of the demand for nice competitive horses. The tip and a lot of the incentives for the thoroughbreds are driving that market, which I think is a great thing. So it has its benefits. And I think everybody just kind of has to figure out how to work with some of the new pricing. But if you haven't been to the track and shopped in 
10 years, five years, even two years, I, I think it's sometimes a little shocking because sometimes I'll look at <laughs> yeah. and, you know, I like the game. I only think I maybe price the horses because I know what I see them selling for. It's not what I would pay for them because I don't, on my end, I would just be like, that is unreasonable. <laughs> but yes, I think they are selling for that kind of. Yeah. Th- and that's the reality. I think, you know, like I said, I wasn't doing anything to, to skew that game in any kind of way. I just kind of did a broad search and it's eye opening for sure. Well, I think it's safe to say that the average cost to obtain a horse from the track has grown a lot. And I think that it's really great. It's supporting the OTTB industry as a whole, like you said, with the RP and tip and just that people are realizing that these horses have some serious value and have found their place into every discipline at the highest levels, which is really cool. But I think it's really hard for resellers to actually turn a profit sometimes. Let's break down some of the factors that resellers use to market their horses. So Jessica, we're going to go through these individually, but let's speak a little bit about gender. Yeah, for me, I I love mares. I really do. And I buy mares, but I still think that pretty much anybody would tell you that it's much harder to sell a mare. So whenever I think about horses that I want to buy, I have to think that if I'm going to buy a mare, it has to be something that I think has really good breeding. It's going to stand sort of out among what else is being marketed. So an attractive type, something that maybe has some chrome, like a really good mover. That being said, sometimes I just think I like it enough to buy it. I sometimes buy small mares. It's like what speaks to me and and I know what sells, but that doesn't mean that it always, you know, sort of makes me restrict what I think I want to buy. And because I'm like, yeah, cool horse, I'm going to buy it anyway. So like, (laughs) whatever else, I'll find somebody that likes it as much as I do. I bought this little Tisnow mare when I brought her home and the girls were like, she's so little. And I'm like, but she's so cute, you know? And it's like, (laughs) this is going to be hard to sell. And sure enough, like it was because small, plain, bay, mare. But again, you sort of just go with your gut. But yeah, definitely mares are, I think they bring less money. That is always my experience that they will always bring less money unless they are just so outstanding that you can ask more. And and I think that sometimes you just don't know that until you have them in your barn. So you can't bet on that all the time. And then how do you think color plays into it? Yeah, color is huge. I would love for that not to be the case, but it <laughs> is. Anything with chrome sells great. And I'm talking chrome as in like four white socks, a lot of white, you know, big mm-hmm. white, white people love like white on the face, big blazes, things like that. And I sell black horses really well. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, uh, but just dark bays, black, if they have some chrome, even better grays always to me do pretty well. You're going to have some people that are like anti-gray, especially people that hunt or maybe are afraid of melanoma. (laughs) So I think that can go like either way. Like some people don't want to clean them. I don't like melanoma and people that hunt, they don't always like having to clean a gray horse before fox hunting, which I understand. But for the most part, they do so well. So it's funny for some reason I would have thought that fox hunters would be all over gray horses, but I don't know why I'm thinking that. um, You know, like, it just depends if they have staff or not. So sometimes, like, you'll see a (laughs) lot of uh, staff members 
have gray horses, but that's because they have other people that get them clean for them. So <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's and then, like, it's it's the truth of it. People will oh, say, oh, like it's fine, and like the huntsman will have a gray horse because everybody gets the horses ready. For Maybe that. that's why I feel like I've got it in my brain. I feel like I've seen a lot of huntsmen on gray yeah, horses. Yeah, about that, like whips, huntsmen, <laughs> yeah. like staff do have a lot of gray horses. Their barn staff is probably cursing them like every day. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so on the flip side, though you know, you're going to pay more for that gray horse. You're going to have to be able to sell it for more. Right. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, that is always like how you have to balance that out. I just had a gray recently and people were like, oh, you bought him because he's gray. No, I, I really didn't. I would have bought him if he was any color, but I had to pay a lot more Mm. money for him because he was gray. When I asked his price at the track, it was $8,000, you know, and I was like, yeah. And and (laughs) I actually wasn't asking about him because he was gray. I really liked his pedigree. (laughs) And um, I just waited it out a little bit because I didn't think that they were going to get that price. And then I went back to them and, and the price was lower and I did pay a lot of money for him, but I thought he was worth it because he was big and he was gray and he had spectacular breeding and I knew he was just going to be this amazing horse. And he was, he just fabulous, but I have to feel really confident if I'm going to make that, make that leap. Because I always say this to people, it's all a risk. I don't vet anything because you really can't. The horses I buy, it's just too competitive. And I don't think people understand that most trainers are not going to allow you to vet the horses. So how much risk are you going to be comfortable because I know that that horse is going to have to get vetted here and I have to feel really comfortable that it's going to pass a vet. And that's a big risk factor. It's a little bit like playing roulette every day is how you make your money. Yeah. I will say when I paid for that horse, I was nervous until the day that he stepped into my barn and then I just took a sigh of relief that he was like as nice as I thought he was. And I think people maybe just don't understand that because there's just a million things that could not be as advertised, right? So you never truly know. And gambling that the horse is going to be nice based on his breeding. I mean, there was like a 20 second jog video and it wasn't even a good video and his pictures were terrible, which is probably why nobody else bought him. So (laughs) like I gambled and I did great, but I also think that's just experience knowing that the horse was going to be good based on his breeding. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, I think that like quality comes in any color. Yeah. And I think that sure. people need to understand that if the horse is super quality and a very de- desirable color, there's going to be a surcharge. That's just the market and the market drives that. That's not you being yeah. like, hmm, how can I ask for more money on this horse? Oh, I know it's gray. No, the horse, like you said, it could have been any color and it would have been a standout. But the fact that it was gray was like, yeah. okay, if this horse is as nice as I think it's going to be, I'm going to make some money off of it, at least on the back end, you know? Yeah. I always like go into any horse that I buy. I'm mm-hmm. like, can I double my money? That's mm-hmm. just sort of where my mind is because I just think I have to feel like that's kind of like my confidence level, right? That's like yeah. the pep talk I give myself is, do I feel confident that I can like double my money on this horse if I buy it? And when you're buying a horse at the track, that's like upper four figures, then you're talking like you got to be able to sell that horse in the low fives, which is really hard to do. I don't care who you are. That is really hard to do, you know, so you got to really feel pretty confident. Mm -hmm. And they have to be exceptional. They do exist, but but they're not cheap. (laughs) No, no. And they shouldn't be, you know, I mean, that's what I tell people all the times that I, I really feel like there are horses, plenty of thoroughbreds that are at the track that are worth every penny and people will pay it. I have no qualms paying it. If I think the horse is exceptional, yes, I will 
pay high fours for a horse mm-hmm. and feel fine about it. So it's just, I don't know that sport horse people would always be comfortable buying those horses because you get such limited information, right? So somebody saying, I want 6,500 for this horse that's at the track. And you're like, this is the only picture you have. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Any more jog video. No. Can you? <laughs> no, you're not getting anything else. You have to make your mind up with yeah. nothing. And you don't know if it's going to vet. It's just like a complete gamble. So I think those are all the things that are just scary. How do you factor the racing career into setting prices? Or is that even a factor that you consider? No, I don't. I More horses versus like a horse that's no. only done a few races. It's all me, kind of... Best. it like makes no difference because yeah. people say all the time that certain horses vet better than others. And I, I like to think that I probably have sell more horses than most people have ever experienced. And I will say that is not true. Number of races does not dictate how clean those x-rays are going to be. And if you think that you just haven't done this enough, because that's not true. Some of these war horses would absolutely blow your mind with how clean their films are. And I've had horses with like 60 plus starts and they're mm-hmm. like, look better than some three-year-olds. So I mm-hmm. do not um, think much of it. And I, maybe I'm also like a little bit opposite is that I like a horse with a bit of a race history. I'm actually not a fan of buying horses that don't have any starts. And (laughs) I just have my own personal reasons for that. But I feel like a lot of times it's just because sometimes in my experience, I've had worse luck with those because their work ethic is just really bad. And that's why they didn't make it to the track. And so give me a war horse, give me a horse with 20 starts that's proven itself, you know? So you know, people say, oh, we just couldn't get them to the races. And why? Like, why? You know, yeah. Always questioning it. And, and again, some of my contacts, I absolutely trust them. You know, it is a money issue when you think about that yeah. training bill that you talked about, you know, mm-hmm. twenty-five to $4,000 a month. A lot of times it is pretty obvious when the horse is two years old, going into his three-year-old year that this horse is just not going to be much. And that's fine. I think that is the case in a lot, but in some cases, you kind of have to read between the lines and, and figure out like, all right, what's really going on? <laughs> well, I talked about it in the episode where Emily interviewed me about my first thoroughbred. And that was one of the, my big takeaways was that I was like, I would be less inclined to buy a horse that hadn't had any race history because of the things that I experienced with that horse. And I don't think he was an outlier in that regard. I think that's more of a a statement about unraced horses in general, but I think it's interesting and I agree with you. Yeah, the word, sure, word but ethic was not installed. No, it was not installed. Work history is is a way of evaluating soundness. So some people like get scared off by that. But for me, when a horse has a race record that I can look up on Equibase and I can study, it tells me a lot about that horse. There's a lot of information to be gathered with a race record. So I think that's valuable information and also like soundness. So I know if a horse is running and they're running pretty consistently, like that they are getting through the vet and it tells you info. So if you're watching the jog video and you're like, okay, this horse ran two days ago, it's jogging up pretty sound. Everything looks good. Joints look cold, tight. That, that's a lot of good info. I mm-hmm. people always talk so much about thoroughbreds and soundness and it's just not my experience. And again, we vet over a hundred horses here a year and I'm talking extensive vettings. It is rare. And I really do mean that it's rare for a horse not to pass a vetting to have a major finding right. on a vetting. Yeah. And maybe that's because I'm experienced and I know what I'm looking for and I'm researching all those race records. But I do think 
you don't get that in other industries with warm bloods and things like that, right? You don't have work history. Thoroughbreds have a lot of work history and yeah. that is a very valuable tool if yeah, you know how absolutely. to use it. <laughs> you know, Equibase yeah. is your friend. <laughs> yeah. And and even when you're reading the chart and you can kind of see, oh, the horse had a good race record. And then you find out, oh, it sounds like he was a little cocky at the track. That might be a nice sport horse or whatever. Like you say, like a ton of information there that's available to you. Yeah. Because you're always looking at breaks and gaps and mm-hmm. what they mean and how did the horse have time off and maybe why did it have time off? And, you know, yeah. steeple chasing is different than flat racing. I buy a lot of steeplechase horses. They have so many do not finishes in their races and that's common mm-hmm. and it's nothing to panic about but I know I I was like laughing sort of the other day I was reading a comment about one of my horses and that somebody was like oh you know this horse has soundness problems because he they pulled him up like three times steeplechasing and (laughs) it's normal and again I knew perfectly good reason why but if you didn't know because you weren't familiar with that it would maybe just be something that you didn't know right so you know all that like little pieces of information are are interesting but I do go to the comments whenever I see, you know, a DNF, mm-hmm. like it's the first thing I do, right? Is go, yep. like, why did that horse not finish? Sometimes it lost its rider or exactly. it's coming yeah. out of the gate right. or it pulled up, but it walked off. Sometimes exactly, like, yeah. there's things that happen. Someone say jump got the rail. <laughs> I was going to yeah. say jump the rail. <laughs> right. I did buy a horse that ducked out twice and it had two DNFs on its record because both races, it, came down the home stretch and when the rider went to switch the whip it ducked out and dropped the rider <laughs> oh my and they God. told me like straight up they're like hey this is what he did there was a video of it and i was like oh my <laughs> too Lord. smart you know, but again <laughs> it I makes knew- me think of that horse that was at the kentucky derby one year i think it was a chestnut with a bunch of white on it and it bucked like bronc oh, yeah. the first 30 seconds of the race and i was like he looks like he'd make a nice sport horse <laughs> yeah, our friend our friend was looking at a horse i don't know last year and she sent it to us it's a really cute horse but i think it had some dnfs so even i looked it up and like it would basically buck the rider off immediately <laughs> as soon as it would leave the gate we're kind of like mm, i don't know if you want that one but yeah right. yeah, yeah, yeah yeah i mean it does Like the research is there to be had. I have lots of tricks and tips that I use when I am researching horses, because for me, horses, like you mentioned earlier that you can look up auction records and, and I think auction records are valuable. And I talk to vets about this and they're always like, wow, that's really interesting. I never thought about it that (laughs) way, but you have to think about a horse that went through a sale has generally had their joints cleaned up, right? So you can look at that record. The horse sold well or whatever, but Generally, if somebody is sending a horse to a sale, they have done repository x-rays and they have done any cleanup of OCDs or whatever it might Mm -hmm. be there. And you can almost bank that that horse is going to vet fairly clean if it is still sound. It has rarely ever failed me. And it's just a little trick that I think works well for me. Like you see a horse that sold for... Now, granted, like I know it's ran a couple of years, but if the horse is still sound, you're like, well, as a two-year-old, it sold for $200,000. Right. Like it must have vetted pretty well. It's scoped pretty well. It's just information. It's not foolproof, yeah. but it's... Yeah, that's a great you're point. You're kind of like having yeah. a detective looking at all these little clues. And mm-hmm. then if it didn't yeah. sell at that sale, there's probably a reason right. why also. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and also I think that the horses that go to sale, they're also handled in a really special oh, yeah. way leading up to the sales. If they do yearling and two-year-old sales and things like that, they've gone through a certain level of experience that a lot of horses don't get at that age. Yeah. So I think that's very cool too. And then the last one, you know, the most polarizing one is how do you factor vices into your pricing structure? Vices, you know, it just depends on the vice. So, and and how you feel about vices. So yeah, I, my best horses, honestly, have been cribbers. I, I don't really knock off a ton of a price on a cribber, but you just have to understand that when you buy a cribber, it's always going to be less people that are going to be interested. So for me, it doesn't mean that I won't buy one. I do, because if I think the horse is nice enough, they always sell. And I'm just really a believer that a nice horse is a nice horse and somebody will come along for it. For me, it's a little bit harder in my setup to do a true serious stall walker because I don't have run-in sheds and things like that here. So I try not to buy them, but I think like you can sell them if, if you're just honest about it. You know, weaving doesn't really bother me too much. It just always comes down to just being forthcoming, but you're not going to get top dollar unless, unless you just are like, whatever, I'll take the time that it takes to sell the horse. So it, it, it just, I don't know. How much do you like the yep. horse? How long do you want to hold out? Some of the best horses that I know have vices because I swear it's just a thing with top yeah. athletes that they all have. <laughs> They're these, cor- like, yeah. yeah. Quirky what, things. what about wind issues? Wind issues, I think like it depends on what the issue is. Some I don't think are serious, but others I do think are more serious. And it's tough because what race trainers don't consider to be a big deal can be like a bigger deal to sport horse clients. So Mm -hmm. if the horse makes a noise, I do think it's harder to sell because it's just such an obvious thing. If they've had a tie back and it's successful and they don't make a noise, I think then generally, okay, but I've had some horses that have some pretty complicated issues like that. I got one and I forget even what he had. He had something really strange and they did tell me a little bit, but not the full story. And it was just one of those things where the horse could have a very low use career and he had to be fed on the ground. And it was like, way more severe than I thought. But I think a lot more riders are lower level riders that are scared off by, by wind issues that do not affect horses probably below prelim. You know, most horses are not affected below, you know, a certain level. Now, certain sports like hunters, they really don't want them to make a noise, but you know, you just kind of have to like know that like for eventing at the upper levels, wind issues, are important, you know, so, you know, we try to talk about what we do know. If I have one that comes in and I'm not sure, scoping them is really inexpensive. So it's like, all right, let's see what's going on in here. You know, like, yeah. is it paralyzed flat? Is it this? Is it that? You know, let's, let's see. Interesting. It's actually not as common as you would think for people to scope as part of their vettings. So yeah, I don't, I don't run into that much, but of course on the racetrack horses get scoped very frequently. And I think a lot of upper level riders, when they do have a horse that has a little bit of a wind issue, they tend to wait until it's completed a certain level to do a tie back or a tie forward. So I think that you take your chance on a horse that has a little bit of a roar or something. So, well, I created a little formula to talk to you about, and I'm 
really proud of this, so, which I might leave that part out of the podcast. Leave it in. So one of the love it. <laughs> one of the things I think that plays into the sticker price is the fact that you've spent years cultivating relationships with trainers at the track that you trust, and that says a lot about the quality of the horses coming through your program. If we were to create a formula for resale pricing, I think it would look something like this. We are going to post this either in the show notes or we're going to come up with a cool graphic for this. So stand by everybody. Okay. So the formula would look something like this track price plus shipping plus overhead times the number of days, the horse is at your farm plus physical qualities plus X factor equals sticker price. So we're going to break them down a little bit individually. So the track price can be, Largely influenced by location, time of year, quality of trainer, track, so on and so forth. We kind of discussed that a little bit. The shipping can really vary depending on how far away the horse is from your farm. Average rates being between $1.50 and $2 a mile times the distance traveled. Then your overhead times the day at the farm. This is going to vary, but it's going to include the daily costs of doing business the makeover cost. So are you going to clip it, give it a bath, have a staff that does that kind of stuff for you, et cetera, plus vet, farrier, dentist. So you're going to want to probably put a set of shoes on it, get it evaluated in some way, and also maybe get its teeth looked at. And then there's the little bit of a a nuanced uh, cost in the overhead, which is the expert assessment. So that's what someone's essentially paying for paying to you for your expert assessment of a horse. Then we've got physical qualities, which is height. Obviously, horses that are taller seem to fetch a bigger price. Color, which we've spoken about. Gender and how those are all biases that come into pricing. And then you've got the X factor. It's that unquantifiable, unpredictable amount of money that you might add to a horse that's an exceptional mover or an upper-level type So that's going to vary quite a bit. And then I also think that there's another factor here, and I think it's buying from somebody with a really good reputation in the industry. I think that when we look around the country, the amount that people are asking for horses is such a wide variety. But I think that you can expect to pay just a little bit more from somebody who has a good reputation. So I think that's a little bit of a question mark in that um, equation, if that makes sense. What do you think about that, Jessica? Yeah, it's a, that's such a like a tough part, right? You know, it's just sort of reputation. And I definitely think it matters that you can research somebody and see what's their average. And, and like, do you use the scale? But it's like, there's a scale of you know, is that person knowledgeable enough to know what looks like a $4,000 horse and a $6,500 horse and an $8,500 horse and a $12,000 horse? Like, mm-hmm. if you look at what they have, does that make sense to you why they're pricing the horses in that way? Because let's be real, like, not every horse is an upper-level horse. So you need to believe that when I say it, I mean it and I'm pricing it accordingly. So I'm not saying that that $4,000 horse is an upper level horse, which is probably why it's priced the way that it's priced. So I just really try to like use my experience to 
price the horses where I think they deserve to be priced. And if somebody's looking at that, they would think that makes sense. Yeah. Of course, like not everybody's going to agree, but there's a history there, you know, mm-hmm. reputation to me is just, it's just, it's everything. It's yeah how I shop for horses. I have like a very select list of people that I buy from and then a list of people that I just absolutely have had horrible experiences with. And I think if people knew the value of that, that they would really understand sometimes why what we do is so difficult and worthwhile, but you can't always put that information out there. But the bad experiences sometimes to me, those are almost more valuable because we have at the quantity of horses that I buy. So if you, if you're looking at, I bought over a thousand horses or more, just the number of interactions and trainers and resellers and groups and organizations and experiences that you have in knowing who you can trust. Like that is so meaningful in this business. I mean, things always go wrong. It's horses. They're risky. They, they, they're always trying to die. You know, everybody's just doing the best that they can. I really believe that. I like to think that people are good and people are just trying to do the best they can, but some I think are more trustworthy than others. And I think that the the reputation aspect of it has real financial value. If you're going to spend money on a quality investment item, which I think horses are, you know, either it's an emotional investment or maybe you're going to buy the horse because you want to sell it down the road or whatever the case might be. I think you, I'd be much more willing to spend money on something if I knew the person I was buying it from had a really good reputation in the industry and had the knowledge and expertise and to back it all up, you know, and I'm, I'm sure that like your, your testimonials probably speak for themselves. But I mean, when you talk about the numbers of horses that you have going in and out of the RRP and things like that, it's a little bit of a numbers game, but that numbers game allows you to have a very good reputation. So, yeah, I mean, I always feel like you, your horses do your best marketing. So it's mm-hmm. always in your best interest to get your horses matched up correctly. You're never yeah. 100% going to make sure that it always goes perfect because it won't. And people won't always be happy. You know, I keep like reading this thread about myself on the Chronicle of the Horse, although I should not do it, but it's just, it's like an addiction. And I kind of chuckle, but is that how they really feel about me? You know, and I'm like, have they ever met me? Like, have they ever been to my farm? Have they ever done business with me? Maybe some have, maybe some haven't. And I like to think that if people come, they just kind of realize that this is about the horses. We're in this for the horses. Yes, it's a business, but also a business about getting horses into homes. So every horse that we sell is a horse that we've created another space for in a trainer's barn. It's a horse that we've gotten into a second career. There's so many facets to what we do and our value in in the industry that I, I just think that like sometimes it's just hard for people to really understand. Trainers need us. I think they want to do business with us and they find us important they support the fact that we're doing this as a business because the more horses we sell are the more horses we can come buy from them. They Mm -hmm. need us to have room in our barn to be able to buy their horses. So they want us to do well. They're not mad at us for making money. Some sport horse people seem to like get very offended that we are making money, but it's a business (laughs) and you're allowed to to make (laughs) Yeah. Your relationship with trainers and how you buy and sell those horses is to me, it's one cog in the machine of 
the thoroughbred industry. It's just a part of the machine that's that's already in existence. So I yeah. think for people to get annoyed that you're making a profit off of horses that you get a good deal on is is very silly because, well, what's the other route for those horses? Yeah, we're dependent on one another. So they are dependent on us and we depend yeah. on them. And I think that there's a good relationship there. They know that we're buying the horses to resell them, to make profit. You know, I mean, you know, people say flipper, like that's a bad thing. You got that horse and you put one ride on it and how dare you? It's like, <laughs> I, I'm not understanding. There is a lot of value that we bring. And I understand from the outside, sometimes it's hard to understand why this horse that was $2,500 at the track is now $6,500 yeah. in a few days. That that bothers people. I could give you a hundred reasons and feel very confident that I'm telling you that it is worth it. But that's based on my experiences, what I know I bring to the table. And I feel confident in what I bring to the table. I know like the fact that I've cultivated these relationships with trustworthy people and I know how to research the race records and I know soundness and the things that I can tell you within having a horse in my barn for three days is probably more information that you're, you're going to get ever going to the track and buying a horse. The yeah. things that I can tell you that happen and that I can identify would probably just like blow your mind. You'd be like, wow, I never even thought about that. And it's just yeah. things like that. I think if you don't understand how wrong it can go, then maybe you're just never going to appreciate that price difference. And that's okay. Like, I get it. Then go to the track. Then you take the risk. I mean, people say that to me. I'm like, you take the risk. You let me know how it works out because there is so much risk involved. Every horse that comes in, how much money do you have invested? You know, most horses that come into this farm are at least like you're looking at that's $3,500 walking off the trailer mm-hmm. and you, you know, nothing like yep. you hope but but can a normal person that doesn't own their own farm, that doesn't have the resources, that doesn't have the background, the ability to get them going and assess them, are they going to be comfortable um, doing that initial part? You know, I don't I don't know. I never know. But people are still coming here and they're still feeling like it's worth it. So I think there's definitely a place for everybody that wants to do resales. There's all kind of people doing it at different levels and, and yeah. making a great business out of it. Yeah. And you kind of touched on where we were going to go next with the risk factor. And when you're buying from a reputable reseller, I mean, they've taken that risk of buying that horse with no vetting off of maybe a 20 second video clip off of a really crappy confirmation photo because you're so experienced at looking at that crappy confirmation photo and rearranging the parts in your mind that you really know what's going on there and assessing the race record, assessing the breeding all of those things. And that is worth so much just to avoid, like you said, you know, okay, go buy it, you know, might be fine nine times out of 10, but that one time out of 10, maybe that very inexperienced person ends up with the wrong horse. And then now we've got a bad situation on our hands. So I really think that risk is something that needs to be talked about more and and brought to the forefront and just to help prove the value of what services that people like you offer. I was just thinking like, as a very abstract thought, what if somebody had to hire you to go to a bunch of tracks 
go look at a bunch of horses, speak to all of the trainers and evaluate these horses. And that's before anyone's even sat on the horse or maybe even seen it move loose. I mean, that's essentially what you're doing. You're horse shopping for people that don't know exactly what they want yet. And I feel like in the warm blood industry, that's such a like common thing, right? This trainer buyer relationship where like there's this big commission fee involved and like the trainer goes and talks to the sellers and looks at the horses, maybe rides the horses first and all this kind of stuff. Essentially you're doing a similar thing where you're like, no, I've already sourced a group of really good quality horses. Here they all are in my barn. What are you looking for? Yeah. And the thing is, is that you just can't get that information at the track. And even from people, I feel like I'm pretty experienced, but there is no way as experienced as I am that I can even tell you what the temperament of that horse is going to be like, how it's Mm -hmm. going to move. You can look at it and think you understand, oh, it's going to have this, you know, X, Y, and Z. And then it shows up and it's like completely different. So people have asked me if I would sort of charge a fee to evaluate horses. And I don't feel comfortable doing that because I think that's really hard to do. Yeah. And the way that I buy horses would make people really uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. I will say that it it makes me uncomfortable sometimes the way I have to Mm -hmm. buy horses. And I I don't think people understand how competitive the market is right now when horses are posted online and a lot of horses I'm buying privately. So I don't have to deal with that competitive, but like, say you have somebody like Amy Pullis or, you know, another reseller listing a horse. We are all seeing that horse at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've got about two minutes to make a decision. And oh, yeah. when I say that, I'm, I really do mean it. I mean, I'm like hurrying to look at the picture, the video, the breeding and like make a decision so quickly. Yeah. It, it like your head would just spin and yeah. like that's, you, you don't get additional pictures. You do not get additional jog video. Yeah. You do not get additional information. What you see is what you get. And you literally have to send the money. Yeah. Like, with Immediately. With I, two minutes. I have it, wired it, Amy money in the middle of the night. <laughs> I was going to say, I was like, I feel like some of our best purchases happen in the middle of the night when something just happened to get posted really late and it's like Correct. midnight. And, and you and, were the and first one. Eat. Yeah. And, and Emily would be like, what do you mad about this? You. And you're like, would you have bought that horse as quickly as I bought that horse? Because that's the risk that I'm taking to like mm-hmm. hope that it goes right, never knowing. And then accept that risk, right? That if you bought it, it's nobody's fault if it doesn't turn out because like you're not going to be able to vet it. You are just using all your skills mm-hmm. in like hoping that you've looked at all the right things and the jog and the equibase and all that and that your eye is good enough that it's going to be yep what you hope it is that is what people don't understand and i That's feel like most for. people you know, probably would never even be able to buy those horses because they are just not quick enough. And that's where the resellers are just a little bit more like experienced and just have that little bit more sort of ruthlessness. I think that it takes to like compete in this current yeah. market because so, it's that competitive. Can I tell you a secret, Jessica? <laughs> yeah. The whole reason that I created OTTB <laughs> market was so that I could see the ads <laughs> before you did. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Because I had them all on post approval. People message me to be like, 
you bought that horse, didn't you? Because they just know it's my type. And I'm like, yeah, it was me. I guess I'm just that transparent. But <laughs> I think as it turns out, we have a very similar type. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I think there's a lot of us in this business that do, and we know what we're looking for. And we know that how quick we have to be to make that happen, you know? And I guess I'm not sure that people understand what goes into yeah. how crazy and competitive it is to buy the horses that we buy because sometimes I'm like, holy crap, I, I just bought a horse in one second. There are horses that I buy that I don't even have videos of and that scares me, but it's mainly people that I know. So that trust factor yeah. is big. A lot of people just know my type and they'll say, hey, like I got something you like and I just know if it's coming from XYZ person and they said I'm going to like it, I just send them the money because they know yeah. and I trust them yeah. and it works out. But I don't think sport horse people shop this that way. And I think that's what's important for people to know is that there's no room for additional information, for vettings, for all the things that add the value that we're putting on is like the ability to come see that horse, the ability to see that horse free, free jump, free lunge, have a ride, see it in the mm-hmm. cross ties, seeing it get in a bath. I mean, the things that I can tell you in one day, like, it's just crazy because sometimes that horse comes off the trailer and I'm like, well, damn, it cribs. Right. No, it wasn't, that yeah. wasn't an ad. Oh, it's a weaver. Oh, it never did that. You know, crap. <laughs> it, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it never, never cribs. Never. You know, <laughs> a million times. And again, like, it's, it's sort of part of doing business. So for me, it doesn't upset me. But if you had to buy that horse and you were going to board it, you would be very upset, yeah. right? That would be like a big thing because oh, your yeah. boarding barn would be pissed. Where I can be like, okay, let's just find somebody that is going to accept this. That's not the risk that other people can afford to take, right? Or you can't get on this horse from a mountain block. That's a (laughs) deal breaker for a lot of people. It's common Mm -hmm. for us. but And sometimes it comes in and I'm immediately like, it's not sound. I don't know why, but like... Undescended testicles. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I've had a couple of those and you're looking at doing a really expensive surgery right off the bat and doing diagnostics because you're like, this something's already, you just know like "Mm, that knee doesn't right look right. Or, Oh, they didn't tell me about this big massive wound on the leg, just various Mm -hmm. things that become apparent or the height wasn't as advertised. You know, that happens a lot. Emily and I, we measured each other. And I think (laughs) I think Emily's seventeen one. I don't remember. Oh, wow. I don't remember those. And I, I think, think I'm, I'm, that tall. I'm like exactly sixteen hands. So we'd go look at horses or whatever at you know tracks, and I just kind of meander over to the horse and just standing <laughs> next to it, like all right, that well, was sixteen. Hands. I definitely had somebody I used to buy from pretty frequently, and I always knew that the horse was going to be at least two to three inches shorter <laughs> yeah. than she said. Maybe we should buy them a, <laughs> measuring, a measuring stick. stick. <laughs> yeah. We went around Penn National one time with Sue Smith from yeah, Cantor, Anna. and you know they use a tape when they measure. And I mean, mm-hmm. those horses aren't really standing still. So I think you have to realize that, like, if it says sixteen two, it could be sixteen hands, it could be bigger. You They're just doing the best they can. But if it is a big deal for you, then yeah. I just I think there's a lot of disappointment that can be had there because that that happens a lot to me. But you get them in and you actually put a stick on them, and then you yeah. can say with with all the authority in the world. Yeah, guess I mean, for what? The most this part, like, actually, we do measure them, and I mean, obviously, we have to measure everything. But I can eyeball them pretty well just because we look at so many of them. And but I can't judge 
height based on track pictures. It, it's really yeah. difficult because you don't know how tall that right. person is. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> You'll see some like woman like running with the horse. And I'm like, either that woman is five foot one yeah. or that horse is 18 hands. I don't yeah. know what's happening. Yeah. And then I have bought some horses that have been bigger than advertised. So it's like, oh, oh okay. But, you know, I sent a shipper down to get one in Louisiana and he like called me up and he's like, I don't think this horse is going to fit in my trailer. And it, it legitimately was <laughs> oh my like God. 17 free hands and probably like 1,400 oh, pounds. Wow. And they did tell me. I'm not sure if I didn't really... Maybe I just like was like, oh yeah, sure, okay, you know, I, like it's unusual for people to really have seventeen three hand horse, so I just yeah. like was like, oh yeah, okay, yeah. sure it uh, is, you know, like yeah, <laughs> nope, he was. We actually, he was just the biggest horse. I needed like a different girth than I didn't even own, and like he had a <laughs> oversized bridle. It was just like ridiculous, <laughs> you know. But all those like things, I'm like, how much do they matter to you? Because there, yeah, there's just a lot of things that I think cannot be truly predicted at yeah at a racetrack and temperament for me is just really hard because what horses are on the track is not really what you get just having a horse two days in turnout like they can come in here just as high as a kite to the Mm -hmm. point you're just like i'll talk to you in a couple of days like just go Mm -hmm. like breathe (laughs) and then they're just the easiest going quietest but if i saw that horse at the track i might not buy it Mm -hmm. and then like vice versa sometimes i get horses that just have this super chill way of going and then you get on them and they're like wow and you're like oh where did that come from but again that one ride i just cannot tell you how much information can be gathered in like with somebody that's knowledgeable that has seen so many horses that can actually like sort through yeah, this horse has the talent to do this or no, it's not this because people will ask me all the time. Of course, I'm never going to be 100%, but I like to think that I'm pretty good at predicting. And yeah, I'd feel comfortable putting any anybody on this horse. People say, well, well would you hunt it? And I'm like, no, I wouldn't hunt it. Um, I, I have to say also that mm-hmm. is our highest consistently listen to episode is your first ride and assessments episode. And it's really cool. If if you're listening to this episode and you're wondering why Jessica's talking about it, she did a really cool episode with us that just talks all about how she goes about doing a first ride and the assessments that she's able to make from that experience. And I think it's a fascinating episode. And in terms of like how that ties to pricing, I don't price my horses until we ride them because I think I don't really know what I have until I've been able to do that ride. So that's a really good point. I try to hold off because a horse can look beautiful in a free video or it can have a lovely confirmation. And maybe that doesn't tie to the ride or the ride is better. Normally I will say for us, it goes the the other way. They're way nicer than we expected them to be like, maybe we would have underpriced them. But sometimes mm-hmm. I probably want to overpriced. Sometimes, like I have one right now, he's real fancy in the free area, but not at all under saddle. You know, and I've just been honest about that. He's so growthy and he just looks really yeah. awkward. And if I stood there and watched him in the free area, I'd be like, wow, he's super fancy. But so I'll like watch him under tack. And he's just not very impressive. And maybe that's going to come later and maybe it's not. You know? But then you have to price them sort of using that scale mm-hmm. that I kind of talked about is, well, that's going to be at the lower end of our scale because... Mm-hmm. We're, we're sort of being honest, right? To say, this is probably going to be a really nice lower level horse. He's super Amy friendly and he's adorable and he has a beautiful eye and he's got a lot of good qualities, but he's maybe not going to be like this perfectly conformed horse that's going to like go above novice. Yeah. It's okay. 
Because if you're looking in that lower or under five budget, that's probably what you're getting. I think when I see in search of ads, I just like find them to be super unrealistic because I'm just like, yeah. what people mm-hmm. are looking for just doesn't, it, that, that's not, it just isn't The more reality. exclamation points in the, in search of ads <laughs> equals the less serious the buyer and the more strict their like unicorn expectations, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, of course, this cost coming off the track and then you had to say, okay, I'm looking for this upper level horse between four and six. It's over 16 hands. That has to vet perfectly. That horse in any knowledgeable person's barn is going to be $6,500 and, and up. Yeah. Like, it's just not realistic to think that it's not. And if you say, oh, well, it's a thoroughbred. Why? You know, why like, not? Thoroughbreds are upper level horses. Yeah. You know, so why for not? Me, I just think we need to like get a little more real about, you know, and look, I hate to say this because I, I don't mean it the way that it sounds when I say it, but the horses that are in that lower price range, a lot of times are in the lower price range for a reason. Right. And we need to be honest about that, right? Like mm-hmm. you have to say it's maybe because they don't vet as well, or maybe they have little things and they have vices, they have this, they have that. It doesn't mean that they're not great horses for somebody, but that's not what that person's looking for if they're like reaching out to me looking for a horse to do a two-star right you know you have to know what horses fit that criteria and hopefully that's why people are coming to the people that do know because we can say well out of this 10 horses that we have two that we think would do above a two-star and then we have these others that maybe are our training to one star and then our baby novice to novice like know what that difference is and and be able to like back that up And I just think it's amazing that somebody could come to you and say, for the sake of argument, $6,500, find a horse that would be perfect for beginner, novice, novice, when these horses listed at the track that you know absolutely nothing about are ranging between four and $6,000. This just kind of proves the point that we're making in this episode, which is that when you buy from a trusted reseller, you're getting so much more for your money. Just so, so, so much more. It's just a a value that is almost impossible to really put a price on. And I think that's the biggest takeaway from this episode. And I hope well, that that's how it's received. Too. Like you can come and try it. You can, you can mm-hmm. bet it, you know, you can um, spend time with it. <laughs> you know, you can get like a million videos of just like it getting tacked up and it getting yeah. a bath and it standing at the mounting block. And then like we show that introduction to jumping, you can tell, does this horse, is it figuring it out? How's it doing? Is yeah. the training progressing? All those Can't things. Can't a joke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, just all the things that you would probably just not be able to get to see. And again, the value that you place on that, I guess, is up to you. But for me, there's just a lot of value added in what we're able to tell you, what we're able to show you, the things that I'm able to gather about that horse. Because I, I feel pretty confident with having that horse for a couple of weeks to say, yeah, this horse is really going to like eventing or it really has the great brain that will be suitable for fox hunting or just to be able to say, no, I, I wouldn't buy it for that. And and I'm going to tell you why I wouldn't. And like I can sort of articulate what horses will work for what things. Somebody was here yesterday and I thought that was nice. Like she said, we keep coming here to buy horses because we know when we give you our criteria and we come here, you're going to pull out five horses that are all suitable for what we told you we're looking for. And I'm mm-hmm. like, 
wow, it's really nice because it might not be the five that they thought I was going to pull out, but I have in mind if they just let me kind of do our thing and we'll, we'll pull them out some stuff. And I think they stopped on horse number three and they were like, this is the one. And they didn't even look at the rest of the list. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. But they were like, this is it. You know, we rode a couple and they just said, don't show us anything else. This is it. And yeah. on the trailer he went. And that's awesome. It's great. But I think that's the value that we hopefully can provide to people is that they know if they give us that criteria, we know our horses well enough to say, you know, here's the group that we recommend within this group, but you can kind of look and tell me like what you might be further interested in, but I don't recommend this. And I think that's like stuff that I can't get at the track. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, it's great if it turns out better than expected, but sometimes I'll buy something. I'm like, Ooh, I don't really know what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) But at least you have the resources and you can back that up when something maybe doesn't go completely as planned. Well, I think the conclusion to this topic is that it's very complicated, but some trends and factors play a critical part in driving the prices of OTTBs available throughout the country. Some of these factors are static and a few of them are dynamic and evolving. And I think resellers are using those trends to find a way to support the industry and hopefully for them make a profit. And that's okay. Any lasting thoughts, Jessica, before we wrap this up? I always say there's good horses to be found everywhere. There's awesome people out there. I buy horses all across the country from so many different people. And I've just had some really great experiences and some really bad experiences. And I think that's just part of like the business and being involved in horses is that you kind of take those and you formulate, that's how your background is made up. Right. So that's kind of what formulates who you are and how you do what you do and how you structure your business. There's not one way, there's not one model, there's not a right, there's not a wrong. And we all have something to offer. 501Cs are great. Resellers are great. Track listings are great. Like we are all here for the same mission. So when I hear people compare us to one another, I'm like, we're all here for the same thing. Everybody doing what they can to like get these horses into new careers. We all need to work together and do everything we can to just be supportive of one mission, which is get these horses into new careers. So I just really don't like to compare because everybody does their thing and we all have something to offer. So Yeah, Um, I I do like to bring that up all the time because I support a lot of other people's businesses as well. They bring a lot of value to my businesses, 501Cs, other resellers, track listings. Like there's just so many pieces like that we use for what we do and they use us and like we all need one another. So it's a really cool industry when you think about it that way. Uh, Neve, do you want to give us the results from the beginning of the episode? Uh Yes. So I think that Jessica got unlucky with the the $4,000 addition to her amount, but (laughs) Emily, you won with only 3000 additional dollars added to yours. Jessica came in at 55. Wow. But I think, I think you might've had a little bit of a bogey one there. We might have to play this game again down the road. I think it would be fun. That's not Mary that crib really got me. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be holding on to that one for a while. That's all I got to say. I mean, I'm going to have to send you a picture of her. She's really stunning. <laughs> can you remind us again where our listeners can find you online? Uh, so we're uh, website is um, www.benchmarksporthorses.com. We're on Facebook under uh, Benchmark Sport Horses. Awesome. 
If you guys liked what you heard today, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find our podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can find us on social media. Look for OTTB on tap on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and also our website, www.ottbontap.com. Feel free to reach out to us on any of those platforms or email us at ottbontap.com. We'd love to hear from you. Jessica, thank you so much. See you next time.